1: Real noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: And I just wrote down, like, I can't believe Rick needs us to know that death is hot. And then, like, literally, I'm listening to the audiobook as I'm typing this out, and then it says, not hot. To be clear, death is not hot. You don't want (laughs) to fuck death. everyone. Welcome back to Monster Donut, your favorite literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Emily, a writer and classic scholar.
3: And I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. I thought you were going to keep going.
2: <laughs> I thought I was too, but I didn't think of a good fit.
3: <laughs> and today we're talking about The Son of Neptune, my favorite of the Heroes of Olympus books.
2: I think it is also my favorite the only one that might come for it is house of hades mm-hmm. i think we both love this book for the same reason though which is that i love feral percy so much that's
3: like, not the reason <laughs>
2: I love it. <laughs> oh, it's also the first time we get to see him from like other people's perspectives in their heads and it's just so funny to me every time like mm-hmm.
3: for me it's the uh hazel frank percy dynamic
2: Oh, interesting. Okay, well, we'll we'll get into that a lot more because I I want to know more.
3: Okay, let's get into it. Percy is reintroduced to us, killing his way across California. <laughs> He's been stealing police cars, stealing from grocery stores, <laughs> and yeah, has been fighting his way to Camp Jupiter.
2: I think the real interesting detail that we also start on here is that these are the two Gorgon sisters of Medusa that he that are chasing him really interesting about this like coming from like reading through the whole series is I believe those two are the first reference we get of like monsters fading away forever like they're, they're the first time we kind of learn that's a thing in the series so I thought it was kind of cool that we're opening on them coming back specifically mm-hmm. for Percy like oh we didn't even realize those were still on the table yeah. I also like he's like looking down at this cliff like can I jump off it I don't know and I was just sitting there like do it for the science yeah <laughs>
3: So, um, Percy has no memory, except for a, a decently clear image of Annabeth, who he knows is his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, and other than that, he can't remember anything at all.
2: We sort of began to explore memory in our Lost Hero episode, but I feel like there's so much in the Lost Hero, in terms of thematics, that you can't really explore fully until you get all the way through Son of Neptune as well, because I feel like those these books are kind of inseparable from each other. Like, you have to sort of pair them. And I think... Like, what's really emblematic of that is, like, Percy goes through all this in his first chapter, um, and he finally finds uh, a tunnel with some Roman soldiers guarding it, and Juno shows up, and she expects him to carry her across into Rome, in a reenactment of the first Jason test in mythology. And he's kind of completing that Jason story, he's doing all of the other parts, Whereas Jason had the missing shoe, Percy's carrying her. And there's a few... I, I feel like this book also is still replaying the Jason and the Argonauts stuff. Like, we're, we haven't moved on from that story. Like, they kind of all have to go together and fit together like
3: two halves. Mm. Speaking of Juno, I have a lot to say about her conversation with Percy. Because she basically... She offers him a choice, saying that he can either carry her into camp or run off into the ocean (laughs) and she tells him in the sea no monster would bother you you could begin a new life live to a ripe old age and escape a great deal of pain and misery that is in your future if he doesn't carry her the gods will die the world we know will perish and everyone from your old life will be destroyed there's like more to this quote but percy hears this and is confident that she's telling the truth if he ran into the sea he actually would get to live a peaceful life And so Percy listens to all of this and the fact that the gods are going to die and the world is going to burn and all that. He hesitates still, even though he hears that and like still thinks about running into the sea. The thing that actually makes him decide is this memory of Annabeth in his head. And so I was thinking about like, you know, Jason is left with no memories at all, but Juno specifically leaves him with the memory of Annabeth. And so it made me wonder if she left it knowing that if he had nothing to be loyal to, he might not actually follow her or help her. Because like we see how he hesitates in this scene, like he wants to run to the ocean and find that safety. And so I wondered if that memory of Annabeth was left to keep him under control. Yeah,
2: I think that's a really interesting point. I did not think about it like that.
3: How did you think of it?
2: That she wanted her ship to stay canon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, me reading it, you know, I, I first came to these books when I was a lot older than I read the original series, and I came to them after I'd really started, like, actually writing. So I was always thinking of it kind of like a narrative device. Because it's something I noticed actually a lot reading Son of Neptune versus uh, Lost Hero. There's a lot more coy references to Percy's past. There's a lot more references that are designed for the readers than for Percy, to kind of keep you tethered without his memories. And I felt like the Annabeth thing had to be one of them as well, because she's kind of is his connection and has historically been his connection to humanity. See the curse of Achilles. That was always how I thought of it in a much more clinical way. But I think, Now that you're saying that, that also really makes sense to me, because I feel like after the Titan War, this is another interesting thing of this book. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but they keep saying his fatal flaw is loyalty again, even though at the end of The Last Olympian, Athena says she was probably wrong. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me that they know this about him or they think they know this about him and they give him something to be loyal to because i think as you nailed like jason as a character is also very loyal but he's like loyal and honorable in a way where like he's gonna stick his commitments through with the without necessarily having a good reason
3: yeah i was thinking about how if percy has nothing to be loyal to he is someone i think we've mentioned before who wants to feel safe and, like, this is his opportunity after weeks of being on the run to finally feel safe. Yeah. And if he didn't have that memory in the back of his head, he might have just gone for this thing that he, he's he been searching for, for forever.
2: It makes me think back as well, like, Lightning Thief. Like, the only reason he, I think, stays at camp at initially, and the, the only reason why he like, goes on the quest and is willing to do anything is because of his mom and the chance to bring her back.
3: And that's like a huge part of the reason he does basically any of those quests. Annabeth going missing in Titan's Curse or Grover going missing in Sea of Monsters.
2: Yeah. So that is an interesting thought experiment because I, I think you're right. I think Percy, without something to hold on to like that, he doesn't, he wouldn't just go through with something out of curiosity or principle.
3: Mm-hmm. So we get to camp and we meet Frank, whose first line is that should have killed her. And Hazel, whose first line is, Frank, get them inside quick. Those are Gorgons. And so they lead Percy into Camp Jupiter, where he has to carry Juno across the little Tiber, which washes away his Achilles curse. Total cop-out. <laughs> Total cop-out. <laughs> should out. not have lost I mean, <laughs> the
2: empathy link stays, like...
3: This is connected to something that I found interesting about this book, but I don't know if this is the time to bring it up. It's that we spend this book with everyone so certain that frank and hazel are going to die at the end but with percy we're like so certain he's gonna live because gaia wants him as a pawn and so like taking the curse away it's not changing the stakes or anything (laughs) like no matter what he's not gonna die in this book and we know it and he knows it and so is everyone around him
2: yeah so I'm just thinking this through, too, because like his main like things where he's like they think he might die is like the Gorgon's blood, which would not have impacted anything with the curse of Achilles. He still would have fucking died.
3: Yeah, that would have killed him. <laughs> and then we would have gotten to like explore the limits of it and gotten to play with the rules yeah. and in a way that we never get to because it's taken away immediately.
2: I did also really enjoy that Percy's first impression at Camp Jupiter is creating hands out of the mm-hmm. water of the tiber to fight off the gorgons and everyone's just like
3: yeah, people are they're all terrified of him immediately
2: and once again apparently being a son of neptune or poseidon or the big three is a bad omen
3: so we're continuing that theme mm. Um, also, in this scene, we meet Raina, whose first line is Percy Jackson, question mark.
2: <laughs> That's such a lame first line. Yeah. <laughs> for for those at home, I should disclose this now. Raina is my fave of all the characters in this entire series. I love her.
3: <laughs> in all three series? or In all
2: of it. Every, every rec- all of it. She's my favorite. Wow. Th- this is, okay, I should explain also, like, my... As soon as there's a character introduced where it's, like, a scary woman with some kind of power, not, like, magic powers, but, like, power, but, like, who shows a little bit of vulnerability, I'm like, that's mine, she's mine, and just kind of snap her up, and that's my favorite character.
3: Yeah, I was surprised at how much vulnerability she did show in her introduction. Because in my head, she's much more like stoic and scary than she actually is portrayed here. She's like actually sort of a down to earth chill leader.
2: (laughs) I think she's built up by the other characters into being quite stoic and scary. But I feel like, again, Percy is just really good at getting people to confide in him about things for some reason.
3: (laughs) Yeah, but she also like her expressions are described a lot. You know, she smiles a lot more. She's She just seems, like, friendlier with people than I remembered, which might be because of fan interpretations.
2: <laughs> yeah. In the conversation with Reyna, there's also the part where he's trying to figure... He, she's like, who are you anyway? And he's just like, I don't know. And they're like... She points out his necklace and he's looking at all the beads and he describes all the beads on his necklace. And then the one for The Last Olympian, he describes as, like oh, and then this is the Empire State Building with, like, a bunch of names around it he didn't recognize.
3: hmm
2: And that line really stood out to me because I was just kind of hit with, like— because he gets twinges of, like, memory and stirrings for so many things in this book. And, like, the fact that he's, like, looking down at a bead and reading all of the names of, like, his friends who died <laughs> Mm-hmm. And he has no recollection. He's not like, and there's something about looking down at like, you know, the, basically a list of your dead friends from that thing that just happened to you that was really traumatic and you don't even recognize the names.
3: Yeah, I had the same reaction. Hazel leads Percy around the camp and then through New Rome, which is the recreation of Rome, slightly modernized, where demigods are able to build families and a future.
2: I do want to touch on the Larrys a little bit, just because I'm going to come back to that. Because what struck me most, like, reading through all these descriptions of Camp Jupiter, I mean, I was having a lot of fun reading it, because there's so much that's, like, very Roman. The whole time I was reading this, though, I kept thinking how different it is from Camp Half-Blood, because Camp Half-Blood is not as Greek as Camp Jupiter is Roman. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, the the way that they have, like, an entire government. And they have an opportunity to build families and legacy here. Building familial legacy was, like, a huge tenet and hallmark of the Roman system. To the point that, like, a lot of upper-class Romans would have these things called ancestor rooms. Where they'd make, like, wax face casts of all of their, like, dead ancestors. And just, like, have them hanging in a wall. Staring at you disapprovingly. So that you'd, like, go in there and just get stared disapprovingly at by all your ancestors, and you feel, like, motivated to go out and, like, do, like, great things or whatever. So it's fun to me as well that the Larrys are part of it, too. Like, this, again, constantly building these legacies where you have, like, these really old ghosts that are still tied to New Rome. I also love this one ghost character who keeps being like, I remember when, it's, like, all different periods of yes. Roman
3: history. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they, they literally, call like, him call out. him out, like, That makes no sense, (laughs) what you just said. (laughs) Well, Hazel leads Percy up to the temple hill where he meets Octavian, who kills Percy's pillow pet, which is so (laughs) useful.
2: R.I.P. Literally, (laughs) (laughs) right?
3: But when they get there, uh, she leads him to her brother, Nico D'Angelo, who pretends not to know Percy. Why? Who knows? This
2: interaction (laughs) is so funny to me.
3: It's genuinely like, why doesn't he tell him? I'm sure he says in a later book and <laughs> i just don't remember but i was reading it like it can't be because you can tell that the gods are up to something and so you're not interfering well, even though i'm sure yeah. that's the reason <laughs> i have something to i want i want to bring it up here but it's like almost entirely irrelevant <laughs>
2: <Okay>. <laughs> what just... is this entire beginning if not
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's just something i was thinking about while rereading this time I'm going to make it relevant. I was thinking about this when we ran into Nico up here after, you know, while we're in the middle of this tour of New Rome, because there actually is a New Rome that Nico might be familiar with in Italy.
2: And it's not the set of HBO's Rome that they still have.
3: Not that one. It was built during Nico's first lifetime while he would have been living in Italy. Basically, when Mussolini took power in Italy, he was obsessed with ancient Rome and saw it in particular as like a great fascist empire that he not only wanted to emulate, but wanted to surpass. Mm -hmm. And so as a monument to fascism and to celebrate his own achievements, he decided to build a new Rome, which would exist in Rome, like in current Rome. It would be across town and would be the new center of Rome. Everyone would obviously move to his new Rome. And the buildings there were all ancient Rome inspired, but like extremely angular and blunt. And the most iconic of those buildings is the Square Colosseum, which is exactly what it sounds like. And I actually used to be able to see it from my apartment balcony because it's at the top of a hill and it's totally bizarre looking.
2: That sounds like the pixie realm and like, in um, Fairly Odd
3: Paris. Right? (laughs) Exactly. That's what it is. What? But I'm sorry.
2: The whole reason the Colosseum is architecturally impressive is that it's a fucking
3: circle. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's so silly. It's,
2: <laughs> it's like, oh my god, he rebuilt St. Peter's, but it doesn't have a dome. And it's like, that's literally It's why just a Saint big Peter's flat building.
3: There. What do you yeah, guys think? Like... <laughs> but uh, to make this relevant, this is the kind of rhetoric that Mussolini was pushing as World War II began because this was built, I think, the same year that World War II began. And it's, the Italy that Nico would have been growing up around before his family came to America. And now he has to come to New Rome, which obviously isn't marketing itself as like a monument to fascism, (laughs) but is marketing itself as the new center of where Rome is nowadays, where people, Rome's people can come and finally be safe. And, you know, it's like kind of the same ideas. Rereading it now, knowing this about Rome's history, I started to think that that might be why Nico is clearly only kind of playing along, but not actually embracing any of the Roman side of things. Like it feels like he's following mm-hmm. along for the sake of appearances, but is always at a distance. And so it, I started to interpret that as the fact that he grew up around this kind of thing would be naturally put off by it.
2: That is really interesting. I did not know that. But I did think that was also interesting as well in light of another line that people mention when they're talking about Camp Jupiter, which is like, Basically, just, like, these references to how many civilizations built themselves off of Rome. When what's also kind of interesting to me is, like, a lot of those civilizations, I'm putting in air quotes, tend to be more fascist regimes or people calling back to a perceived stronger past. I feel like a lot of people don't realize just how deep the Roman propaganda goes. Like, Ares shows up, and he's he's sending people on a quest, right, to go free death so that people can die again. And Percy says, well, wouldn't you like having, you know, people alive forever in endless war? You're the god of war. And Mars says, I'm the god of Rome, child. I'm the god of military night used for righteous cause. I protect the legions. I'm happy to crush my enemies underfoot, but I don't fight without reason. I don't want war without end. (laughs) There's this great quote that I love. I forget who said it. Um, but it's, Rome conquered the world in self-defense, because basically, if you look at all of Rome's wars and how they began, for five fucking minutes, not even, none of that is true. Like, a lot of people read De Bello Gallico, which is Caesar's work on the Gaul it's called, um, on the Gallic Wars. Did he write it, write it? Unclear. But it's on when he conquered Gaul, which is modern-day France. And it begins with him saying, basically, there were these problems where a lot of refugees were coming in to Provence and displacing the peoples there. And there was violence coming in. And so they had to go take a couple legions to pacify it. And a lot of people, when they're teaching about Rome and learning about Rome, they look at that and they're like, yeah, that's a, yeah they're trying to keep their territories safe from outsiders coming in. And then they kind of ignore the part where Caesar conquered all of France after that and then kept going. And a lot of people are like, well, yeah, and you, of course, make a lot of money because you're taking all these riches and territories. But the other thing people ignore is the fact that the vast majority of the wealth that comes from conquering territory comes in the form of slaves. And that is a huge driver of the Roman economy. You can't tell me that any of that was for righteous cause. Maybe the original reason given, the excuse to go and do that was the reason, but the primary reason any of this happened was for personal economic game of Gaius Julius Caesar and the much lower personal economic, economic game of all of his officers. And ultimately, so many throughout history, European empires are reformed, quote-unquote, to offic- like, and officially were marketing themselves basically as the successors to Rome, and so, like, for example, like Charlemagne, when he was doing um forming the Carolingian Empire, that was kind of like the goal. It was like, Okay, we're the successors to Rome, or like the Holy Roman Empire, which a lot of people like to joke was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, but they called themselves that because they were like, We're the successors to Rome. Like there's so many throughout history, European empires that are reformed, quote unquote, to officially like, and officially were marketing themselves basically as the successors to Rome. It even continued through the nineteen forties. Versus no one's really doing that with the Greek stuff. Oh, this is also interesting um, that's kind of connected to that is... So obviously on like the Greek side of things, they, the way they explain how the world works to all of the people is like, oh, the Greek gods or the originals, they existed and they still exist. But we also kind of get a slice of the Roman side of things and how they explain it, which is that Rome was the lasting cultural impression rome was the strongest memory rome was kind of the thing that everything's built on not greece which is why the roman versions of everything are what persisted and not the greek version Mm -hmm. which i thought was really interesting
3: and they also very clearly give the explanation that like we took what greece did and made it better and then i think we even later on in this book have someone i can't remember who say like oh of course that's what they taught you in rome that that was how it happened when actually it was different from that
2: we also get introduced to hazel has blackouts
3: mm-hmm. where
2: she fully like passes out cold and is unresponsive and relives the memories she had of her first
3: life something i've been thinking about uh, a lot specifically because um i talked about it a little bit on camp half pod which is another Percy Jackson podcast that everyone should go check out. And I was on a recent episode about Charles of Apollo, and we talked briefly about how physical the descriptions of remembering things become, the more traumatic and impossible to reconcile with the present the memory is. And so rereading this book, I started thinking about the way that memory is treated as a very physical sensation in these books, because for Jason, it's the headaches. Like the feeling that something is there and he can't get to it and it gives him these piercing headaches every time he tries to remember or every time a memory starts to come back. And for Hazel, it's this like sickness and like the wooziness before she passes out. For Percy, it's interesting because it's like total emptiness when he when he remembers there's no headache. It's just like a total calm recollection. Like, oh, I remember this until he gets to the point in like the next chapter, which is just a total breakdown. Because
2: the way I wrote it down was it's like his it's like almost instinctive. Yeah. Like he reaches for it and he's and it's there. Like he orders a blue diet Coke and he's like, huh, weird.
3: Yeah. It's all just like ingrained in him in a way. And then we get that moment where what you remember doesn't match up with what's going on around you. And so Percy has what's probably most comparable to like a panic attack. And so we see memory as this like bodily sensation. I do have uh, questions about why Hazel's are so intense.
2: That feels like it works for me, though, because hers aren't it's like not just memories. Like this is her second life. But it was one of those things, I think Hazel's experience with memory, though, was one of the interesting points of contrast for me when thinking about Percy and Jason with their memories. I think her, like, coping mechanism also for not blacking out is, like, she just, like, avoids remembering it in detail. Like, it's only when she, like, is kind of struck with, like, a strong reminder of her memory that these blackouts happen. And you see her, like, feeling like she's starting to think about her past, and then, constantly being like, Oh no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And she's kind of like avoiding it by avoiding thinking about it, which I thought was really interesting.
3: Yeah, I thought having Hazel with Percy on this journey was it was like a cool a cool pairing because you had on one side Hazel who remembers her past too intensely mm. and Percy who can't remember any of it at all. And so it was like the the ups and downs of remembering
2: <laughs> <laughs> the uh epic highs and lows of high school football. <laughs> epic
3: highs and lows of high school football.
2: So it takes them like a while to, after Mars assigns them the quest for them to actually like get their ass in gear.
3: We take the Roman Navy. (laughs) Which is a single ship called PAX. Yep. It's not even a ship. It's the tiniest little boat. They take it (laughs) along the coast until we end up toward the top of California. Which is where Hazel has another blackout. And Percy and Frank somehow carry her to the top of a cliff And leave the boat and all their supplies down in the water. <laughs> which I don't doubt their ability to carry her that far. It's just kind of strange to carry her that far. But while they're up there, once she wakes up, she is quickly kidnapped by... What are they called? Wheat spirits.
2: Oh, the carpoy. Yeah. Which is... That's Greek, by the way. Carpoy is a Greek word.
3: Yes, I could tell from looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> Do I have anything to say about these little guys?
2: I only had one thing to say about those little guys, which... These guys are old motherfuckers because they resent the agricultural revolution.
3: Yeah. (laughs) But these spirits drag Hazel out into the middle of this field uh, until Percy and Frank show up. And Percy, he pulls out a lighter and threatens (laughs) to burn down the field. (laughs) He just...
2: Every single monster encounter in this book, when it's outside of Percy's perspective... They're all looking at him, and they're like, "This guy's scary." <laughs> like, what, what was the one where he just has to look at somebody, and they're like, "Are like, nope, okay, I'm not."
3: I think it's this one.
2: Oh, it might be where he just like stares them down. They're scared of him. He's just that's a recurring note. I wrote down like almost every encounter where he's just like, like Percy is scary in this book, and I'm trying to figure out when that started. Like, you know, like was it? this book or was it was it because he was literally raised by wolves or
3: i think part of it is that he was raised by wolves <laughs> i guess um it's seeing him from an outside perspective but yeah i i don't think that percy seems that crazy in this book honestly <laughs> <laughs> i think he seems normal i
2: don't i don't know he seems a little feral
3: yes to me he doesn't seem scary in this book and i think it's because it brings him down so many times he is i feel like at his most vulnerable in this book and also like has to be his most open and trusting and just generally feels softer to me in this book than he does in some of the other books i think this scene that we're coming up on is a good example of that where percy has his he describes it as a mental breakdown yeah
2: no this is definitely what i would peg as his most vulnerable
3: well, we see an army coming up over the the hill or wherever we are. I was having trouble figuring out the <laughs> landscaping here.
2: Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> There's like hills and mountains or whatever. It's fine.
3: We see an army coming over that's on its way to Camp Jupiter. And in that army are Centaurs mm-hmm. and some the Cyclops woman that we saw in the last
2: Ma book Gasket.
3: Ma Gasket. <laughs> I think there are a couple of other Cyclops with her. And this triggers something in Percy. And at first it's just sort of like a he's trying to piece it together and he's kind of holding his head trying to piece it together. But by the end of the scene is like shaking and is having trouble responding to anyone and just clearly needs help.
2: Yeah, it feels almost like it's the like culmination of all of his freebies. I feel like he instinctively reaches and gets so much memory that he doesn't like he doesn't know the memory that's tied to it but he knows the action that he would do with the memory if that makes sense Mm. like ordering again i'm gonna use the ordering the blue diet coke as an example it's something he would do as a reflex at camp half blood and so that happens even though he has no idea or memory for why he would want blue diet coke and it it happens so many times that it feels almost like his body is finally catching up with it and he's Mm. taken out for like a while quite violently much more violently than jason i think he has like the most extreme reaction besides hazel fully blacking out yeah,
3: jason has nothing like this mm.
2: for me it felt like his memories were a lot closer to him than jason's were
3: yes his memories are closer to the surface and he's able to act on impulse or instinct and get away with it most of the time but this time the memories that come to him are in conflict with what he's seeing in front of him mm-hmm. to such a degree that it's like he just can't get through it yeah and so that was what i saw as triggering this kind of response because it was like it's the culmination of all of that frustration with trying to reach back and grab at something that's not totally there Mm. and this time he can feel it there but it's like in conflict with what he's looking at Mm. but i feel like this kind of emotional vulnerability isn't a side of percy that we really ever get to see before this mm-hmm like, this is a moment for him and for us that feels new. And I I want to continue talking about Percy and vulnerability, but it's kind of connected to his relationship with Frank and Hazel, which will kind of come up way later. <laughs> so Hazel and Frank lead Percy into Iris's shop where he's able to sort of recover. After that, they head on up to Portland to find... Phineas I forget who told them to go find Phineas I think it was
2: Iris (laughs)
3: okay sure
2: I don't remember either I think it was
3: um but they decide to go seek out Phineas who they're hoping will have a more specific location for them for where the giant that they're seeking out is and where death is chained we haven't mentioned the actual plot of this book that's what they're doing (laughs) yeah (laughs) so this is one of the big scenes in this book that I think of when I when I think of this book.
2: That's interesting, because I barely remembered this scene existing.
3: Oh, well.
2: (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that immediately stood out to me is we've got another, like, son of Poseidon behaving badly that Percy's encountering. Um, The first being Antaeus. And something else that I flagged that I thought was interesting is that he can smell demigods. Which, going off of our uh, prior episode with Son of Magic, it again brought up, for me, like when we can find the clues in the world building for when something someone has become a monster as opposed to a demigod. And he, he's one of the people that Gaia's brought back from the dead, so he's presumably like not a monster in terms of his origin and the way they kill him, and yet he seems to have like made that full transfer, transformation somewhere along the way, which I found to be really interesting. He's also another uh, person that's in the Jason and the Argonauts myth, so it's sort of a continuation of mm. that quest from The Lost Hero. Although they do sort of play it out but they don't play it straight it's a complete reversal of the story sort of like what we've encountered with like Midas for example um someone who's been brought back who has a certain mythological malady and then it turns out they're way worse than <laughs> we previously thought because he's essentially starving his harpies instead of the harpies starving him so he doesn't he's not even really punished he's just Being the perpetrator of harm in this, as opposed to the victim.
3: I want to connect this back to something that I mentioned in our very first episode, which was throughout this book, but I I especially pick up on it in this scene. There's a lot of talking about Percy as a pawn that Gaia is trying to use. (laughs) Yeah. And back in The Lightning Thief, I talked a little bit about the line Medusa has about Warning Percy not to become a pawn of the gods, which is like word for word something that Luke also says at the Mm -hmm. end of the book. And that specifically, that line stuck with Percy in that book. That was the reason that he ended up sending Medusa's head to the gods. So, this is something that has stuck with him for a while now like this warning and this fear from Percy of being used. And then throughout this book, we have Gaia over and over, specifically using the word pawn to describe him, telling him that he's going to be her pawn. Yeah. And in this scene, we get to see him uh, play into it. I mean, he basically does. I, I know that most people say this is the thing from Princess Bride, but to me, this is the thing from Sherlock. <laughs> so.
2: There's a few Princess Bride references in this book, though. Like, there's also the quicksand scene. Like.
3: I have only seen Princess Bride once and I do not remember it.
2: Phoebe! Well, there's definitely. There's a sand scene in The Princess Bride that's sort of similar to, uh... Maybe this entire book is actually just a retelling of The Princess Bride. I maybe mean, that's why they climb up the cliffs from the boat. It's the cliffs of Despair!
3: <laughs> I don't know what you're <laughs> saying to me right now. <laughs> but they, they do the thing where they put the two vials in front of uh, Percy and Phineas, and one of them will kill you instantly, one of them will heal you. So, Percy... Sitting at this table, decides to pray to Gaia and tells her, if I'm such a valuable pawn, save me now and let Phineas die so that you can have me later on. Wild. It's wild.
2: I, I, it's really interesting to see him gamble like that. Mm hmm. Cause you see him and he's like, oh, I've got a plan. And me reading this kind of forgot how this scene ended. So I was like, oh yeah, like he's got the princess bride thing where they're both poisoned and he pretend and he doesn't drink it because Phineas is blind, so he can maybe bluff it. That was how I thought he was gonna get out of it. Mm-hmm. Abject trickery, but oh no, it's even more tricksy.
3: Yeah, he uh. Puts his life in Gaia's hands. Yeah. Which is a very risky move, but he was he's pretty confident doing it. It's so
2: interesting to see him weaponize his chosen one status
3: in this way. hmm It's the fact that he's playing into his status as like a pawn of the gods and something to be used by the gods. Because that's how the gods treat them all the time and we know that Percy hates it.
2: That's why I thought it was when when Gaia first she she basically he has a vision of her right at the beginning. Well, not the beginning, but he has a vision of her pretty early on when he's at camp. And the only thing she says to him is, you will be my pawn. And I, again, you know, not to completely throw it back to our first episode, but I was just sitting there like, Gaia, what's your plan here? Like, do you think that's going to convince him to do anything?
3: Yeah. Yeah. You know when Kronos gets to that point where he's just like taunting Percy in his dreams and not actually doing anything to try and lead him to his side in like, I think it's like the end of Sea of Monsters. But it's very like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of all of the visions that people have of Gaia in these books. And if any of them are trying to speak to them about like her vision for the world or anything.
2: I don't think so. Because I'm with Piper. She's threatening her dad. With Leo, she says, like, I killed your mom to crush your spirit, basically. Again, she kind of overtly states her plan. She's just like, I can't stop you now, but I can crush your spirit. And yet, at the same time, seems completely unaware of how that would backfire in someone to motivate them. Yeah. Like, she's, like, doing the opposite of manipulation.
3: I guess because Gaia doesn't really need Percy's cooperation for her plans for him. But also, I'm like, does someone in this book or am I making this up does someone make a joke about how like pawns get knocked out or like killed
2: I think you're making I think it's later
3: did I have a dream about this (laughs) (laughs) okay well then I'll make it my own point which is the pawns are like the the useless things that you throw to the side in a chess game. <laughs>
2: yeah. I learned that from Queen's Gambit.
3: I don't I know nothing about chess. I haven't even seen Queen's Gambit. All I know is that you are the first ones to go.
2: Oh my god, it's so good, Phoebe. You have to watch it. This is
3: just an episode of me revealing the things that I have not seen.
2: <laughs> a lot of what Gaia promises is not to the people in the present, but rather to the people in the past and like, I feel like this kind of connects a lot as well to some of the themes that we see our heroes go through. But this idea of, like, having a second chance, because, again, her focus doesn't seem to be on the people in the present at all. It's all about bringing these other people forward who have already been killed or defeated and giving them the opportunity to kind of do it all again and do it differently this time. Which, now that I'm saying that, is also really interesting because that's kind of what's happening with Percy and Jason and a lot of the other characters on our, on the demigod side, too. We talked about it a bit with Jason, how he's kind of, like, overwriting his memory files and kind of getting a second chance. But I think, like, having a second life as a theme, we're seeing a lot with almost all of these
3: characters. Mm-hmm.
2: Jason and Percy.
3: Right, both getting their metaphorical rebirths.
2: Hazel, literally. Frank, potentially just... Oh, so Jake, sorry. Jason also got a rebirth.
3: (laughs) Oh yeah, Jason literally died.
2: I feel like potentially Leo and Piper could fall in the same category because their memories were also messed with to create the second life that they're now leading. I suppose metaphorically, in a way, sort of, maybe Frank could fit this category just in terms of him coming into his shape-shifting powers, too, which there's a lot there in terms of, like, changing forms and changing who you are, so.
3: Yeah, I think with that, I would combine that with him getting to go home, come to terms with what happened to his mom, and then watch his house burn down. it might also work for the very end of the book when he imagines he assumes he's going to die at the very end because he's burning his stick and then comes away from that having not died and how does that impact how he moves forward yeah with like this life that he didn't think he was going to have because he thought he was going to die right there
2: yeah and i did- It is a deliberate callback to the Kronos stuff, because there's some other, like, interesting details in this book that we learn. Like, something that I got stuck on that we learn through Hazel's flashbacks is that Gaia was trying to raise the giants before the Titan War, like, back in Hazel's first lifetime in the 1940s. If that had come to pass, then history would not be repeating itself the way it has now. Like, the, the Titans rose and fell, and the Giants rose after. And this book is sort of revealed that that was not really the intention or the plan. It just is sort of what ended up happening
3: by consequence. Yeah. So it's sort of like, it depends on how much of this you believe is the fates and how much of this is just things happening coincidentally the way they're supposed to happen. I feel like this book puts a, a lot more emphasis, even though we do have these three as like chosen ones or potential members of the seven all of them are just potential members of the seven where like in the lost hero they were all like leo for certain is the hero of the prophecy <laughs> <laughs> and like those those three we like know have like a destiny while these guys have much more of like a choice and everything is a little bit wishy-washy around how much is faded and how much they're actually going to participate in this prophecy and like mm-hmm. You know, Percy's a little bit more certain because we know Gaia wants him to be there. But with Frank and Hazel especially, it's like their choices make up whether or not they're going to be in the Seven in the end. And even at the very end of the book, they say, like, if you don't want us to be there, like, it's fine. (laughs) Just take someone else. Like, it's still not destined in the way that a lot of these other characters are. And so I, I liked the way that that aspect of these characters interacted with how often we were talking about, like, pawns and there's a lot of references to like slavery in this <laughs> yeah and just like the idea of being used completely versus like the book's heavy use of like choice and like no one's destiny seems totally set in stone here everyone's a little bit freer than at least the lost hero kids yeah soon. and so having that sort of back and forth
2: yeah i well, but we'll talk about that when we talk about the Amazons, because I...
3: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think it's Hazel who's like, slaves.
3: You guys have slaves? And they were like, no, they like doing <laughs> this for us. And I was just like... But we, I mean, one of our biggest references to it, that's just a quick reference, but it was the one that I like caught on to was Phineas being like, oh, don't, don't act like that. Like Rome was literally built on slavery.
2: See what I said before, you know, like yes correct actually literally yes that was the yeah. basis of the roman economy as it expanded into an empire What's literally slavery
3: and then immediately following the portland scene with phineas we have seattle with the amazons where they keep men as slaves
2: i was like oh are they gonna do something and like i don't even know how i would feel about like there being some amount of consent involved with the men and where they are <laughs> But, like, we don't even attempt that. It's just, oh, yeah, we've enslaved some men. They're over there. And, like, none of the characters, except for Hazel, one time thinks anything of it.
3: Right, they just leave and they're like, (laughs) bye, guys. (laughs) No thought to freeze. And it's like, in.
2: and then Hyla is like, you know, they come in and save the day, and you're just like, okay, but what about the slaves? You know what? I'm thinking about it, and that all of that perfectly emblematic of all of the stuff I was talking about with Rome. Maybe this was Rick signaling to us. Maybe, maybe all of that was supposed to be a microcosm of the way this book treats Rome.
3: I think it was just trying him trying to create a girl boss. It just <laughs>
2: Yeah. Oh, but it's okay, yeah. I mean, there's also that which is the most fun answer, which is like, well, we tried this thing where it's a matriarchy, but we don't know how to create a matriarchy, so we're just gonna make it a really extreme form of patriarchy and gender swap, and like tell and just just change what the name is on the top of the labels of these boxes.
3: Yeah. Okay. But speaking of the Amazons,
2: I feel like this scene is the one I most vividly remember from the book because I had the same reaction as Percy. And I still don't know how I feel about it because I don't like it. It's one of the few modernizations of things that doesn't pass the vibe check for me in these books. (laughs) Because the Amazons wouldn't run a fucking corporation. They're like, it it doesn't work.
3: He clearly just went with the first joke that came to mind. No,
2: exactly. (laughs) He was just like, what am I going to do with these Amazons? Well...
3: Here's a funny idea.
2: <laughs> and it's like, that's exactly what happens. Like, they walk out and Hazel's like, I found the Amazons. And they're all and like Frank and Percy are like, no, you didn't. That's Amazon.
3: <laughs> that would be a stupid joke. That would be stupid. <laughs> I, I guess it happens. I don't know. I do love getting to hear Reina's backstory in this scene, though. Reina and Hyla's backstory.
2: Yes. Awesome. Here's the other thing, too, that I feel like when I read this, even as like a freshman in college, I didn't fully internalize how dark
3: mm-hmm. the Cersei's
2: Island stuff was. Yep. I mean, I, I think Hyla clarifies that she and Reyna at least, but again, it's specifying she and Reyna were fine because they learned how to fight. But, like, it was interesting because when Reina was explaining it to Percy, there was a point in the scene where I was like, oh, it's interesting. I think I wrote down in my notes, too. I was like, oh, okay, it's cool that we're getting, like, the other side to this story. And then, like, immediately the scene kind of takes a turn when she mentions... She doesn't just say, oh, it really sucked to see my home destroyed. It, like, goes a step further of, like, the implications of that in a way that I think the first series never would have.
3: hmm So, um, we get to... Frank's grandma's house and surrounded by Mm-hmm. Which we get past pretty quickly using Frank's new fancy spear. Yeah. Ares really um, loves giving his kids spears and nothing else. And they're cool, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, they're magic spears. <laughs> and so they make it to Frank's grandmother's house and she is dying. Mars is sitting over her bed, but Percy and Hazel can't see him there. So Frank sends them away to go like claim a bed and get ready for, for the night. Um, Because they're going to stay there overnight. And I think this is where Mars tells him a little bit more of his background.
2: Yeah. I remember when I first read this book, I had actually learned about the theory of the lost Roman Legion in China before this book. So it was really cool to see that all connected. But this is actually a very fun theory people have that there's some evidence for, you know, like the Silk Road, as we know it, like existed for a really long time. And I think a lot of people have this misconception that people didn't go places in ancient times, which, like, might have been true for your average farmer because they had to be tied to their land in order to make money and food. But there were plenty of traders always in so many places that I'm sure went on grand adventures all over the place selling wares or just traveling. So this idea of, like, contact between all of these societies is not that far a reach. Like, we know for a fact Alexander the Great in, what, like, 200 BC took his entire army to... The north of india we know that happened and we know these trade routes have existed for a really long time both on land and sea so yeah in case you're all mm. wondering all of the stuff rick was writing about is like a legit historical theory
3: something else that mars said during this conversation where mars is explaining to him why his mother sacrificed herself the way that she did frank is like completely disturbed by the idea of sacrificing yourself like sacrifice is not something that frank understands easily Mm. Like his first instinct in this moment when he's talking to Mars is you should be staying alive, especially for the people who love you. And he's like disgusted. I think that's the word that he uses when Mars tells him that like duty and sacrifice mean something. He's like, I don't know what you're saying to me right now which I I I liked that as an addition to Frank's character because it's not a perspective that you hear from a lot of just fictional characters in general. Yeah. <laughs> like heroes in these stories are supposed to be the first ones to want to sacrifice themselves. And Frank is like, he can't imagine wanting to sacrifice yourself and leave the people who love you behind and so when he hears Mars trying to like rationalize why his mom did it he's like no which is why I was kind of upset that Frank got over it so quickly at the end but you know it's okay
2: (laughs) I mean I can see it though as him no he did kind of think he was gonna die
3: no he literally has a moment where he says like I understand why my mom did it now I understand what duty and sacrifice mean
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah,
3: as he goes to burn his stick, and I was like, "Come on, Frank. You can't develop this quickly." <laughs>
2: <laughs> it is set up in an interesting way, like his anger something that struck me about Frank in this book was how angry he is. like it's he's he's like lightning thief percy levels of angry. It's just like constantly simmering below the surface in him a lot of the time. I think the best example is probably when he's talking about like smashing all of his grandma's porcelain, like after his mom's funeral. Mm-hmm. It's not like Percy where he like harnesses no, but that's not even true because I think he harnesses a lot of the anger like throughout the book he starts to he begins to harness his anger in battle scenarios.
3: Yeah, I think we talked a little bit about that with Clarice, where for Aries kids and I guess now Mars kids, there's like a pool of anger that sits in them that they can pull out of mm-hmm. when they need to, like intentionally go into this well that just sits in them always <laughs> and directed at something. Whereas Percy's powers like that were a little more, you know, it wasn't done with intention most of the time. Yeah, we we tend to characterize Frank as like the soft little yeah teddy bear. <laughs> no,
2: he's he's an angry boy. He's got and like he does have a lot to be angry about. Like I think that setup with his mom having died so recently and him really having a hard time understanding why she didn't come back. Like he struggles with it a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess that makes sense for him as his growth in this book, because it's sort of that's set up right from the beginning as his character arc. But I agree with you. I feel like it should be something that took more than one book to get through.
3: I think especially connected to something else that Mars says, which is the quote is about Percy. Um, and he says, someday soon he's going to face a sacrifice he can't make. Without you, Frank, without your sense of duty, he's going to fail. The whole war will go sideways and Gaia will destroy our world. And I think that as a warning coming off of this conversation where Frank can't totally understand Mm. the idea of duty and sacrifice and that eventually he's going to meet a sacrifice that Percy can't make and then have to help him make it. Like it's such a it's like a threat of like you cannot do this in the state that you're in right now. And you're going to have to develop as a character so that you can do this in the future. Yeah. I think giving Frank the time to develop into that and for like maybe that potential moment in the future to have been a sort of culmination moment for this kind of arc for Frank uh, would have been an interesting one. So after this scene at Frank's grandma's house the plot sort of slows down and we get my favorite section of the book which is like the part where nothing <laughs> happened <laughs> because for the next, like, 50 or 60 pages, it's just sort of them traveling and going through, like, minor inconveniences. Yeah. And so it, it gives them the space to start having these really small moments with each other that I just love. I like it in stories when there's just a lot going on, everything is building up, and there's so much to worry about. And then the writer within all of that still takes time to sit down with the characters and have them check in with each other. Yeah. And have them have real conversations and deal with smaller disasters that have, like, high emotional stakes instead of, like, the the world's about to end, here's a monster, here's a, you know, that kind of thing. I feel like it's, like, moments like that that this book is made up of, but especially in this one little section. Like, when I think of this book, I don't really think of major fights or encounters or anything. I think of the trio deciding to spend the night on a picnic bench and Percy and Frank staying up talking until they can't stay awake any longer while Hazel sleeps on the bench next to them. Or I think of Percy and Hazel building beds out of greeting card boxes when they get to Alaska and just lying there talking until Frank comes back with clothes that he went to go buy them. Those like little moments are what I feel like this book and this relationship is built out of in a way that a lot of the relationships in The past books get like maybe one or two of those kind of moments. And so I feel like getting to see Percy in that kind of relationship, like with Annabeth, his relationship with her has always been a little bit clumsier because it's Annabeth. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And with Grover, like he has those moments, but like we spend far less time with them than we do with Percy, Hazel and Frank all together. And so we get to see a lot of those little moments with the three of them just being vulnerable with each other and like Percy with these these two people who step in and carry him half the time the section of the book that I'm talking about also has the scene with the muskeg where Percy Mm. falls into the mud I like getting to see this intimacy and instant trust and community with these three characters all of them lost and afraid all of them some of the biggest hearts in this entire series all trying to take care of each other yeah it's it's I feel like it's a book built on intimacy sort of in the way that Sea of Monsters is Especially those chapters between Percy and Annabeth where they're alone on the boat.
2: When I think back on this book, I, my favorite part and the part that I remember is the same part, but it's not for the character interactions necessarily. I just remember like those descriptions of the wilderness and them wandering around and all of the Hyperboreans. That's what I think of. It's like this beautiful, mm. breathtaking nature and these sights.
3: There is a line about the nature specifically that I wrote down. When Percy's first seeing sort of the landscape of Alaska, he says, he could see why it was a land beyond the gods everything here was rough and untamed there were no rules no prophecies no destinies just the harsh wilderness and a bunch of animals and monsters mortals and demigods came here at their own risk percy wondered if this was what gaia wanted for the whole world to be like this he wondered if that would be such a bad thing and then he you know shakes that thought off but not because he thinks like oh don't think about that what a world without the gods would be it's because he's like, no, Gaia's evil. Forget <laughs> Yeah. But the reason that I, this line, or this section, I always get stuck on because it reminds me so much of this line that Luke has in the Sea of Monsters when he's talking to Annabeth and he says, the gods have blinded you. Can't you imagine a world without them, Annabeth? And so whenever I get here and I see a world without the gods, like a land beyond the gods and Percy getting to see that thing that like Luke asked Annabeth to imagine the fact that Percy's having this thought at all that he's standing there wondering whether it would be such a bad thing and like finally having this sort of honest moment where he wonders this it made me wonder whether this is one of those moments that I have been talking about about where like they can't necessarily hide their thoughts from us the reader anymore mm. and so if percy wonders if this is going to be such a bad thing he can't brush it off like he would in his narration and be mm-hmm. like just kidding i, I didn't think that <laughs> just kidding um. like the narrator is going to give him away or if this is a development in his thinking of like you know he's gone through the last olympian at this point and now understands a little bit more of what luke was fighting for
2: yeah because i think Go- going back to our conversation that we had right, way at the beginning of this about how Percy like needs a reason to remain on his path to remain loyal to the gods and to like fight for them basically, is he needs a personal connection. What I was kind of getting at, I think, in my response before was that like the gods have seen how Luke's points that are valid have changed his thinking. Like he has brought in. A lot of the things that luke said to him that were right to the fore such as like acknowledging demigods and the minor gods and like all of the tangible changes he demanded instead of a reward of immortality like a selfish reward and i think you also see the impact of luke even on like the entire narrative structure of the series thus far because this like how bad repeating the deeds of the past and repeating all these like quests and things was and how like it's just not making progress it's not doing anything interesting it's just like replaying this old story Mm -hmm. and how narratively they're they moved away from that completely in this series like they're not repeating the deeds of the past i don't think there's a single instance so far that we've had where they are you know the only times they come close it's in a complete reversal from this beginning it's not even in the way the characters respond to it
3: I wonder if part of it is that you know Percy's gone through this whole quest no memories but knowing that he's being sort of maneuvered by gods and threatened with being a pawn by Gaia and then his memories at this point are starting to like come in and so all of the weight of that experience is starting to bubble up and it's like this this new realization of like I did all of this for the gods and like I thought I fixed everything and now I'm I'm slowly now realizing where I am and <laughs> what came before this and the fact that nothing has been fixed and I'm in the middle of Alaska. <laughs> yeah. And I had no memories and was robbed of all of that by a goddess and everything is still falling apart and like that realization is making him have this thought as his memories settle in. Yeah. Okay so we're in Alaska make it to Hazel's old house and are able to... No, they're not able to charter a boat. They're able to charter a horse that can run on water.
2: <laughs> I did very much enjoy the entire interaction where they kept being like, well, we could charter a plane. And Percy just like, no.
3: That was another moment that I think is in that section that I talked about when they leave Frank's house. Is Percy has to fly <laughs> on a plane. This is what I'm talking about where it's like Percy being brought low. I don't mean like brought low, like... yeah in a very intense way i mean in like a he has to be completely vulnerable many times in this book yeah so hazel is able to summon her new horse arian and they take the horse out to the glacier where death is chained up and so hazel and frank are both going into this thinking that they're going to die and still we go and try to unchain death but he has the spirits of the failed mission yeah
2: okay well so this is one of my favorite scenes in this
3: book yeah you go ahead and describe
2: it because i the vibes okay because i think that this is meant to be evocative of this one really interesting event in Roman history, so Percy's already had a dream where he's seen what looks like a Roman encampment in Alaska on the glacier. and like that's where they're headed. And then they get there and it's exactly that. and they have an eagle, they have the right flag. It's like a perfect Roman camp, but it's like described as being like much bigger than the one in Camp Jupiter. But then they walk in, the door is open, and it's completely abandoned at first, which I love vibes wise but is also a reference to something that actually happened in the history of rome so basically really early on in the history of the roman republic like really early on There were these, they were described as, like, Germans, but we're not really sure if they were, like, Celts or Germans. Like, the the Romans had this bad habit of just, like, calling everybody Germans interchangeably (laughs) with, like, Celts. Like, if if you're just, like, past the mountains in northern Italy, like, you're just German, I guess. That's true. Which makes, it makes tracking, like, who these people were very frustrating for historians, but alas. But, um, there are these two tribes called the Cimbri and the Teutons that, um cross the mountains, and we're going to invade Rome. And this is one of the few times where the Romans were really seriously defeated early in their history and basically they knew they were going to get overrun, and they had basically an inner citadel and an outer citadel. And so what they decided to do was just be like, let's just freak them out. This is our last-ditch effort. And they were like, okay, well, we don't want everyone to die, so we'll leave all the valuables out, and we're just going to pack all of the, like, women and children and, like, most of the people into the inner citadel and close the doors and guard it. And then, like, this old guard of, like, the, all of the old proud Romans, all, like, each of them, like, one per household, basically, like, elected to stay behind. And so basically what happened was they left the gates open up to their city. And these tribes came in and to a ghost town. And they were like, what the fuck is this? What is going on? Like, just imagine being a soldier. You're going to go attack a city. And the doors are open. And it's just fucking empty. You'd be like, it's a trap. What's happening? And they'd go into people's houses, they'd be stealing their valuables, and, like, they'd see, like, these, like, old people there, and, like, the single guy, like, nominally guarding it, and they'd be like, what the fuck's going on? And they got so freaked out that they left. (laughs) So this felt like a reference to that.
3: Um, I think what completes the vibes of uh, this moment is the fact that when the ghosts come out, several of them are from failed quests, including... The Michael Varus expedition to get the eagle back in the 80s that we keep mentioning.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And again, they're brought back by Gaia.
3: I'm very excited to talk about a moment that comes in a later book.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's basically Percy kind of, he grabs the eagle and he successfully is able to manipulate all of the Romans into going for the eagle. Because again, they don't actually care about the collective good. They care about honor and pride. And the Roman eagle is very emblematic of that.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. I love that he was able to summon lightning with it
2: so he basically grabs eagle he's fighting them all single-handed and here again we get this description from frank where he's like this dude's making a fucking whirlwind and hurricane what the f like we get that outside image and glimpse of percy fighting and everyone's terrified and then he slams riptide into the side of a glacier and takes like half the army down overboard as he plummets and Hazel and Frank are both convinced he's gone. They're like, oh man, there's a prophecy about the son of Poseidon drowning. They clearly haven't seen the book cover.
3: (laughs) Where he's surfing on a a piece of ice.
2: (laughs) Holding the eagle. (laughs) (laughs) And so Frank kind of figures out that his gift from his dad is tactics. Um, And they're able to take the giant out of Alaska where he can't be killed, him, him and Hazel together. And they take him into Canada where they kill him. Um, And then (laughs) they come back and the line is, Percy was waiting for them. He looked mad.
3: Nobody saw the stunts he was doing on his new surfboard.
2: (laughs) But um, then it turns out one of the other things that Gaia was able to bring back was all of this imperial gold weaponry. And so they all gather it up to bring back to the legion in Rome. And there's a line in this scene that I thought was really interesting where Percy, I think, remarks that once they load up the chariot and they tie everything down, that it's, quote, like Santa's sleigh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which felt like a very deliberate Titan's Curse callback to me. A A couple points throughout this, as Percy, even before Percy regains his memory, he has a few flashes of memories in his dreams. And one of the few we see is of... Zoe Nightshade's Death, and it's right after yeah. this that we get the him commenting about Santa Sleigh to Artemis's chariot, and so I just I couldn't help but notice that, and I have no idea why this is a callback here, but it feels like
3: it right, which it's funny because the first time I read it, it just emphasized how young Percy was I and mean, then this time. It's a, it's such a, it's a much less tragic situation. None of his friends died like they thought they were going to. Death let Hazel go free. Frank didn't burn out his stick like he thought it was going to. Like it's, it's Mm -hmm. a much happier situation or a much more hopeful situation. And so I, I guess, I don't know. I guess making that, that reference, it just makes me feel how much Percy has grown since then. Yeah. And then I literally took no
2: notes on that battle, the next battle.
3: Yeah, they go and they, <laughs> they go and they, uh...
2: They win the fights, Amazon show up, Hila's on their side, we never address the slavery, it's fine. Don't
3: uh, worry about it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And then um, after they win, uh, Juno comes to Percy in a dream, and he starts attacking her with water, which is wild. (laughs) And he like does it first, and I'm like, "Wow, that was bold of you, Percy!" And then he does it like again. He like makes a fist, and it's like punching her.
3: Yeah, by the end, he's created a whirlpool that is like growing and growing throughout this scene it's it's definitely bold and it's (laughs) this is fed by or feeds i can't decide which word to use (laughs) my feelings about percy getting to alaska and having that feeling of like all of the weight of the gods having not fixed anything since he, you know, made his requests and did all of that throughout the last series. Mm. And, like, having that moment of, like, you know, now his memories are fully back and he understands, like, the gravity of how much Juno or Hera, like, took from him
1: Mm. and
3: forced him to do throughout this quest. Like, he didn't understand it fully when he left and now that he's back. There's this moment where Juno explains to him she says after your victory over Kronos in manhattan well i fear that wounded jupiter's self-esteem percy says because i was right and he was wrong oh yeah (laughs) i'll be honest when i think of this scene what i think of is not any of this conversation it's the end like the last sentence where he loses control of the whirlpool that he's been building throughout this scene out of anger and then ends up being pulled down by it Which just feels like foreshadowing or a metaphor. (laughs) But it's that moment of pushing himself to the point where he can't control himself anymore. Um, Except he's doing it in his dreams now, which is not good. (laughs) Yeah,
2: not great. I think I missed that because I was so distracted by Juno saying, it will be the greatest quest since Aeneas sailed from Troy when she's talking about the Seven. Y'all, Juno was the villain of that. Like... (laughs) That's like Poseidon being like, oh, man, what a great boat trip, just like Odysseus took in the Odyssey.
3: (laughs) Yeah, but like she's not going to act like she was the villain now. She's going to be like, it was successful and it was all thanks to me.
2: (laughs) We get one last scene in the Senate with Octavian. There's something I didn't talk about because we sort of skipped over the initial senate scene that I thought was really fun. But um I one of the things I found really entertaining about that scene was how Percy was not only able to tell Octavian was manipulating everybody, but exactly how and like to an extreme degree. And I was just like takes yeah. one to know one.
3: There's a lot oh th- yep. <laughs> <laughs> That wasn't what I was about to say, but sure.
2: <laughs> and we're just like I, I just feel like it's interesting to me that Percy really is able to see just from his body language and the way he's positioning his words, like just how much he is doing that. But like, I feel like that in a different POV, you wouldn't get that level of like... Detail.
3: Yeah, that's true. I I was going to mention that there are a lot of moments in this book where we get to see how perceptive Percy is from an outside perspective. So we do get that moment. But from I think it's Raina and Hazel, both of them have this moment where they talk to Percy, and he makes some kind of logical jump where they're like, what? How did you guess that? And then he explains like his thought process. Mm-hmm. you know him him deducing things about his his uh surroundings and his situation but he has these moments a couple times throughout the book where he just is constantly watching the people around him and paying very close attention to like every sentence that they're saying so that he can get as much information as possible especially now that he's you know he's lost his memory and has very little information to go off of so he's like clinging to every word that anyone says and mm-hmm. then because of that is able to just piece entire puzzles together and guess secrets. <laughs> guess at secrets and guess at like things that he should not know. Mm. That happens a couple times. I wish I could remember a specific example. I know one of them is that he he knows that Hazel was dead at some point and came back to life when no one told him. (laughs) He just puts it together based on, like, context clues, but there are a couple times when he first gets to camp.
2: And I think both times they're like, you're smarter than you look. And he's like, like,
3: uh, thank you. That's (laughs) kind (laughs) of mean. So do you have a bead for this one? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) You go first. Me. I'm going to say... I feel like the image that sticks with me is the the way that they keep describing Gaia's face appearing mm-hmm. in the mountains. But I feel like that would be an ugly bead. So I don't <laughs> not not that she would be ugly, <laughs> <laughs> but that the bead would look ugly. Yeah.
2: Maybe so it would just like be brown with like a few lines on it.
3: Yeah, like I don't I feel like that's not a fun
2: I feel like my bead has to be the the little the little dingy named Pax. <laughs> Yeah. That is like very emblematic of all of the wrong things
3: two vials of blood hmm. i don't know if that's any good i don't like either of these ideas i,
2: I know it's like life and death which i feel like is a theme you know we got mm-hmm. life and
3: death that was like, a big theme in this one that yeah. we didn't really talk much about <laughs> but it's all right
2: thanks so much for listening
3: next time we'll be reading uh mark patina uh if you would like to see the art that i created this week for this episode you can follow us at Pod on twitter instagram and tiktok and we also now have a tip jar on coffee or Kofi, whichever you say and you can find that link on that social media in our link tree what else this is not on youtube don't look for it <laughs>
2: Phoebe is still busy. She said end of June. This one she freezes. I said end
3: of June. Why are you still asking me? <laughs>
2: <laughs> and thank you all if you have left any ratings on your various podcasting listening platforms or comments. We really appreciate those as well, and we love chatting with y'all about the series. So uh, also, we're going to be doing q and A Q&A episode at the end of this series of books, like we did with yeah. the last. So if you have any already, feel free to send them in.
3: It's coming up already. That's pretty quick.
2: Yeah, I think we, we're, we're out of short story episodes, I think. So we're just...
3: Yeah. We're just powering wow. through. Oh, we're at 59 ratings on Spotify. If only we could get that to 69 ratings. <laughs> <laughs> 10 more, 10 more. Okay, I think that's everything. Bye. Bye.